Well, good evening. I hope the adults are as excited about being here as the children are. I'm excited to be here, except for my voice is a bit scratchy this evening, so I uh, hope God gives me grace in that, that I can deliver what he has laid on my heart this evening. So the topic that was assigned to me for Winter Bible School this year is thriving, not just surviving in crisis. Now, I will say up front, I don't feel particularly qualified to bring this message because I don't feel like I have gone through any monumental crises in my life. Now, perhaps small crises I have. Uh, This whole COVID thing is kind of a big crisis, uh, overblown in proportion, perhaps. That's affected some of us more than it's affected others. But anyway, how do we how do we thrive, not just survive in a crisis? So this message is not about getting through a crisis. It's not about surviving. It's about going beyond surviving and thriving and growing and being better because of the circumstances that we're called to go through. I appreciate the second song the song leader led here. Are we following the path of Jesus? And if we are. He may lead us through crisis. We'll look at uh, scripture from James a little later on that talks um, to that extent a bit. So what are we talking about when we talk about crisis? I have two definitions that I would like to um, bring to you this evening that will be the working definitions for the sermon. Number one is a crisis, and this came from uh, Webster's Dictionary. Crisis is an unstable or crucial time or state of affairs in which a decisive change is impending. I'll let that sink in a bit. Especially a change with the distinct possibility of a highly undesirable outcome. An unstable, crucial state of affairs in which there's an impending change. Probably a negative one. You could think about the tension over there between Ukraine and Russia. What about the Ukrainian Christians? It's a crisis, right? An unstable time, crucial state of affairs in which change is perhaps coming. We don't know. Second definition is an emotionally significant event or radical change of status in a person's life. Again here, I believe, thinking on the negative side. Now, when I got married, that was an emotional, significant, and radical change in the status of my life, but it was not a crisis. And thank God it is not a crisis today either. It's a good thing. This is talking about an event that would be emotionally impact us to the negative, perhaps the loss of a spouse or a loved one or other such events. So these, this is what the, the Webster's Dictionary defines as crisis. Circumstances around us that happen to us throughout the course of life. As a text, you can turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Out of this scripture, I want to pull some of our points tonight. Some will come um, elsewhere. But we'll have this as a kind of a springboard for the message this evening.
2 Corinthians 4, I want to start reading at verse 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. Verse 14. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you for all things or for your sakes that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. For which calls we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Realize God is in control. In the midst of crisis, if we are to thrive, we need to realize that God is in control. We see that here in verses 8 through 10. We are troubled on every side. We're perplexed. We're persecuted. We're but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. God is in control even when things around us seem out of control. Both the definitions of crisis that I gave in my opening comments use the word change. As humans, we don't often do well with change. Even good change brings stress often, does it not? Some changes we can have influence of over. Some changes we cannot. They're out of our control. I'd like to suggest to us this evening that our attitude towards change that we have no power or no influence over will help us in time of crisis to not just survive, but to thrive. Psalm 91.1 says this, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Two words I'd like you to focus on in that verse. Dwelleth and abide. Dwelleth has the idea of 
of a house. A house is where you dwell, is it not? It's where you find safety and shelter and refuge. We are instructed in this verse to dwell, to be at home in the secret place of the Most High. The secret place is our relationship with God, is it not? And we are to abide, again, a place of rest. We are to abide under the shadow of the Almighty. If we are abiding and dwelling under the shadow of the Almighty, anything that comes to us must first pass through the Almighty. Right? If we think of the illustration of a shadow, a shadow is something blocking the light. There's something in between me and the light. God provides that protection for us, and we can dwell, we can abide there in the midst of crisis, realizing that God is in control, even when my circumstances seem out of control. I believe Paul realized this when he wrote this letter to the Corinthians. If we look back at verses 8 and 9, Paul says, We are troubled on every side. Now, think about that a bit. When we face trouble in life, I can face trouble head on, or maybe to my right-hand side, but he says on every side. He was facing trouble head on. He had trouble behind him, to his right, to his left. He said, we're troubled on every side. Everywhere we turn, there's trouble. As if there's no resting safe place. There's trouble. But he said, yet we are not distressed. How can somebody say that we are troubled on every side, but yet we're not distressed? Only somebody who believes and lives realizing that God is in control. We are perplexed. We're confused. We don't know what's going on. But we're not in despair because God is in control. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are cast down, but not destroyed. This was written by a man who realized that God was in control. Later on in the message, we'll look at some of the crises that Paul had to suffer in his life, and we'll see some more of his attitude towards those circumstances. We see a bit here in verses 8 and 9. So we realize God is in control. Second point, God gets the glory. Do you believe that God may allow crises to happen to his children so that he can get more glory? Are we willing to believe that hard truth? Joseph was already brought up this evening in the devotional. Joseph, crisis in his youth, falsely accused, jailed, forgotten. He had to manage through a famine a life riddled with crisis. Consider Job. He had the crisis of poverty. And his poverty was so much more acute because he had wealth. Right? 
He knew what it was like to be wealthy, and just like that, he was poverty, nothing. Loss of health, loss of family and friends. You could say, if you want, he was troubled on every side. Even his wife said, why don't you just curse God and die? In a crisis, we must look beyond ourselves. It's natural that we think about ourselves. That's human nature. I'm not saying that's wrong. However, we must realize that the crisis we are going through is part of a much larger story that God is writing. We can look at the story of Joseph or Job and say, oh, yeah, see how it worked out? See how God got the glory? Sure, I get it. But what about Joseph or Job in the midst of that crisis? They didn't see that big picture. Just like we don't always see the big picture in our lives. What's God's purpose, the suffering that I'm going through? I don't know. We don't often know. And that's okay. I believe having a perspective beyond ourselves, having a perspective larger than ourselves will help us to respond in godly ways in the midst of crisis. Let's go back to Joseph and Job. What would have been the outcome in Joseph's story if he would have just thought about himself? Did you ever consider that that story could have had a different ending? I don't know if this is heretical or not, but I like to imagine stories in the Bible, how they could have been different. How if the individual would have responded differently, how could have it ended? Because I think it's instructive to us today because we are living the story of our lives. And we have a chance to respond in a godly way or an ungodly way right now, right today, in the midst of the crises that we're a part of. Our stories are real, just as Joseph's story was real to him. What if Joseph, thinking only about himself, when he was falsely accused, or even before that, maybe he said, poor me, why am I in this circumstance? My, my brothers forsook me, here I am in a foreign land, Perhaps he would have given in to fornication. There's no hope. I don't care. Or maybe when his brothers came to Egypt seeking food, he would have just had them destroyed and would have had no chance to reconcile with them or to see his father. Joseph's story could have ended in bitterness and anger and revenge, but it didn't. What about your story? What about my story? Perhaps Job, thinking only about himself, he may have taken his wife's advice and just committed suicide and said, I'm going to be done with this. If this is the God that I serve, I don't want anything to do with him. I'm done. But he didn't. Job didn't see the spiritual forces that were at play. He didn't see that conversation in heaven between God and Satan. Neither do we see the forces that are at play in our stories, in our lives. 
We don't know how our response may get God more glory. So the question that we each need to ask ourselves, am I responding to life situations in ways that will bring God more glory? It's a challenging question. The next point follows along very closely with the second point here. So first, we realize that God is in control. Second, God gets the glory. And third, I won't be a victim. Joseph, Job, could have they been victims? <laughs> yeah, especially Joseph. Absolutely. If Joseph, would have, if Joseph would have been a 21st century American, he would have a victim written all over him. <laughs> In today's culture, it's popular to be a victim. The government would like you to be a victim. Society says if you're a victim, you have rights and people owe you. Because of what you've gone through, because of any number of things that may or may not be within your control. Has the victim mentality crept into our churches? I hope not. Because it's a dangerous, dangerous path to be on. I mentioned Paul earlier. This is the part where I'd like you to respond. Was Paul a victim? Did Paul see himself as a victim? This is a question. Did the Apostle Paul see himself as a victim? No. Thank you. No, he did not. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's get a snapshot here of some of the things that Paul suffered. 2 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 24. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. What does that mean? Do you know how that feels? (laughs) This wasn't a father lovingly punishing his child. I'm sure I've gotten a few stripes from my father. But they were loving stripes. They were not stripes to beat me unmercifully. And definitely not 39, five times. I'm sure they left marks. Verse 25. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. I think that this were my story, it would end right there. Once Marvin was stoned, period, and that would be it. (laughs) I'd be done. (laughs) Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day have I been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils among false brethren. 
This sounds like trials on every side, doesn't it? Yes, we just read about that. We are troubled on every side, but not distressed. In weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and in thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. I've been hungry before. I've been cold before. But hungry and cold? Without a way to alleviate my suffering? Then he says in verse 28, Besides, all these physical sufferings laid aside, he said, those things that are without, beside those things that are without, I'm sorry, laying aside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. So Paul is almost saying here, I suffered all these physical things, yes, but just as equal to that was the suffering I endured, the, the labor I put forth to care for the churches. Paul was an itinerant preacher. He was a missionary. He was a church planter. And we see in his letters how much he cared for the churches. Many of them, he said, I, I long to be with you. He had a pastor's heart for his churches. And it weighed heavily upon him. And he carried that burden in the midst of all these physical things that he went through. I, I can't even quite comprehend that. Nowhere in Paul's writings do we see him despairing that he is a victim of his circumstances. Playing the victim card for Paul would have been denying the power of God in his life. Playing the victim card for Paul would have been admitting defeat and accepting the vices of the devil in his life. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then am I strong. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. Let's just stop there. How would have that grace been in vain? If Paul would have given up and said, I'm a victim, I don't care, I'm done, this is unfair, this is unjust, my rights are being trampled on. Then God's grace would have been bestowed upon him in vain. But he said, no, God's grace was not bestowed upon me in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Turn with me to James chapter 1. Are you the victim in the story of your life? I challenge you, if you are, 
to confess that and to find a higher road. The life of the victim is not a life-giving, joyous life. Let's see what James says. James 1, 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Or temptations, you could say, trials. Verse 3. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. I see a progression here. Trials. Diverse trials. The trying of faith produces patience. Faith, another way to say this, faith um, put under trials yields patience. Patience, when it is perfected, leaves us complete and tired, wanting nothing. Don't be a victim in your crisis. Read the Bible. Read about Paul. Read about Peter. Read about Job. Read about others and see how they persevered and accomplished great things for God. They realized that God was in control. That God gets the glory. And they were not willing to be victims. Fourthly, if we are to thrive and not just survive in crisis, we need to identify fears and submit them to God. You may be here this evening, you may say, Marvin, this, this, this is great, this is fine, this is from God's word, but you don't understand. I have fear. My crisis is real. It's personal. Yes. That's how crises are. That is true. Fear is a very real emotion. I believe if we are to thrive in crisis, we need to deal redemptively with fear. I'll ask you another question. You can respond if you care to. If not, that's fine. What is fear? Okay. Yeah. Very good definitions. The feeling of not being in control, the realization of an immediate danger. One thing we can agree upon that fear is a feeling. It's an emotion. We can't always identify what the fear is. But we can feel it. it. It kind of starts here, and it's here. Maybe there's a portion up here, and it, it uh, yeah, there's a fear. 
It turns our stomachs. It makes us feel uneasy. Sometimes it makes us feel sick. God wants to hear about our emotions. God cares about our emotions. God wants us to come to him and say, I feel afraid. I have this heavy weight of fear. I don't know what it is, but can you take it? And God will. But I'd like to give us a tool this evening that I believe we can use to identify fears and lay them at the foot of the cross for Jesus to deal with. Your definitions were both good. I would like to suggest a definition to complement those two. And that is this. Fear is the expectation that I may lose something. So you said an impending danger. Danger. I may lose my physical health. I may lose something that's near and dear to me. Okay? Fear is the expectation that I may lose something. I believe if we think about things that make us afraid in life, things that cause us to fear, it will boil down to that very basic thing. What is my greatest fear? My greatest fear is that I would apostatize and lose the faith. That's my greatest fear. Because I have the ability. I'm carnal enough that I have the ability to do that. Now thank God he has his Holy Spirit within me who convicts me of sin, who guides me, who teaches me, who comforts me. And by God's grace, I won't go there. What are your fears? When you feel that feeling, when you, when you sense that something's not right, that is a red flag to go deeper and say, what is it about this situation that I may lose? And we take that and we submit it to God. And we submit it to God again. And we submit it to God again. And eventually that feeling, that emotion of fear will dissipate. And we'll have peace again. Why is this important in thriving in the midst of crisis? This is important because fear paralyzes and keeps a person in bondage. Satan uses fear in our lives to have us focus on anything other than God. Satan doesn't really care what we focus on as long as it's not God. And the two main things that Satan uses in our lives are pleasure and fear. If he can get us focused on pleasure, he has us distracted from God. If he can have us focused on fear, we're distracted from God. That is why it's so important to identify fears and submit them to God in the midst of crisis. It's not wrong to feel the emotion of fear. That's not a sin. But what is it that we do with those fears? Do we hang on to them and let them destroy us and keep us in bondage? Or do we submit them to Christ? For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. 
Can we reverse engineer that verse? Is that fair? Let me read it again, and let's unpack it backwards then. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So is it fair to say that if we do have fear, that if we are bound by fear, if Satan has a grip on our lives because of fear, is it fair to say that we don't possess power, we don't possess love, and we're not of a sound mind? This is what this verse is saying. When we are paralyzed and gripped by fear, when Satan has us in bondage to fear, we have no power. We struggle to live above sin. We struggle to love because we're in bondage. And we can't think clearly because our mind is clouded by the bondage of fear. We're not talking about just surviving in crisis. We're talking about thriving in the midst of crisis by the grace of God. I've talked about a lot of hard things thus far this evening. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Does God care? Does God care about the crisis you're in? Does God care about our fears? Absolutely, he does. Luke chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, fear not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Those verses are comforting to me. God sees, God knows the very number of hairs on your head. Now, I don't know if that means he cares for some of us more than others, but he knows. To me, that tells me that he knows me that intimately, right? That fear, he knows it. He can see it, and he's like, bring it to me. He's waiting and longing for us to bring it to him. It's not a surprise to him. Our fear doesn't catch him off guard. It's not unknown to him. Because he knows the very number of hairs on our head. Turn with me to Psalm 46. Another piece of encouragement from God's word as we think about fear and crisis. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, Though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, Selah. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early. The heathen raged, the kingdoms were moved, 
He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord. What desolation he hath made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Aren't you glad that's the God who we serve? Amen. I am. So we realize God is in control. God gets the glory. I won't be a victim. We identify fears and submit them to God. Let's go back to our text in 2 Corinthians 4 for two more points. Second Corinthians four sixteen, for which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. If we are to thrive in the midst of crisis, we must renew the inner man day by day. It says, even though the outward man perish, even though all around us we have trouble, the inner man needs to be renewed day by day through prayer. Bible reading, meditation, Christian fellowship. You could throw good Christian music in there too. I've been ministered many times by good Christian music. Day by day. To me that speaks of a consistency. Day by day by day. The time to establish those habits is when we're not in the midst of crisis. So that when we are in crisis and everything around us is giving way, supposedly, seemingly, we have that day by day. We have that relationship with God that we can go back to for strength, for renewing that inner man. Isaiah 40 says that our strength is renewed like the eagles. When? When we wait upon the Lord. The last point here to me is the most exciting point that we pull from verses 17 and 18. Develop an eternal perspective. If we are to thrive in a domestic crisis, we need to have an eternal perspective. For our light affliction, you say, no, my crisis is not a light affliction. You don't understand. Yes, our light affliction compared to what Jesus went through for our redemption. Our light affliction with Jesus compared to the heavy burden the world carries without God. But for a moment, which is but for a moment, but for a moment when compared to eternity... Developing an eternal perspective 
helps us in the midst of crisis. I'd like to read for you a few verses from Hebrews chapter 12. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race which is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Jesus, our perfect example. He endured the afflictions of the flesh in the light of eternity. A few closing thoughts here. In the business world, when we think about crisis, a lot of our minds go to opportunity, right? And maybe crisis is a bit strong of a word. But when there's a need, the business mind says, there's an opportunity. There's an opportunity to provide a service or a product that is going to meet that need. Maybe it is a crisis. But what about in the Christian life? Is there opportunity within crisis? We saw earlier in, uh, was it James, that the trying of our faith, the weight of crisis upon our faith, produces a sweet-smelling savor of patience. And patience makes us complete and whole, wanting nothing. So is there opportunity for us in crisis? If we're just surviving... Probably not. But if we're thriving, I believe there is opportunity. There's opportunity for greater community, to reaching out to others, and to humbling ourselves and allowing others to reach out to us and help us in our time of need. There's opportunity to depend more on God and to develop a deeper, closer, sweeter relationship with Him. There's opportunity to further the gospel through godly response. I want to read you a very interesting passage here from Philippians 1. Philippians 1, 12 to 14. There's opportunity in crisis to further the gospel through godly response. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says here to the Philippians. He says, But I would, ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. He's talking about all these whippings and beatings and shipwrecks and stonings that happened to him. He said, brethren, I want you to understand that all, all these things happened unto me for the furtherance of the gospel. You see, it wasn't about Paul, was it? So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's fellow laborers said, you know what, if Paul can go through that and he can preach the word, then I have more boldness to preach the word too. 
Paul's perseverance, Paul's thriving in the midst of his crisis was a testimony to those around him to say, you know what? By God's grace, I can as well. Might it be that our thriving in the midst of crisis is a testimony to somebody else who is going through a crisis and they say, you know what? I saw them come through that crisis better than I can too. So how do we tell if we're thriving in crisis? We looked at these different actions that we can take. Realize God is in control, right? So that's kind of a, a, mental, a mental thing. It's a, it's a belief. God gets the glory, yeah? Don't be a victim. Identify fears and submit them to God. Renew the inner man day by day. Develop an eternal perspective. How, do we, how can we quantify if we're actually thriving in these areas? I want to suggest to you three ways that if you're going through a crisis, if you've been through a crisis, you can look at your life and say, you know what, I'm thriving. Or maybe, you know what, I'm not thriving. I need to get into the Word. I need to reconnect with God in the midst of this crisis. Number one, if we are thriving in crisis or thriving having gone through a crisis, we will be closer to God instead of further from God. Why is that? Because crisis will do one of two things to a person. It will turn them away from God or it will draw them closer to God. A crisis is a deciding factor in a person's life. It's a time of change. And we will either change towards God or we will change away from God. Secondly, having gone through a crisis, am I more compassionate and caring? Or have I become bitter? There's a man in our congregation. Um, middle-aged, older man, lost his wife to cancer. I have seen him in that crisis. I've seen how he's handled it. I believe it's brought him closer to God. And I can see in interacting with him that he is a more compassionate and caring man because of what he went through. I believe he's thriving. He's not just muddling through. He's not just surviving. He's thriving. He's a more compassionate and caring man today than what he might have been previously. Thirdly, we are more eternally focused rather than more temporal focused. Going through a crisis in the midst of a crisis, are we more eternally focused or are we more temporally focused? I believe if we can say, you know what, this crisis has made me more eternally focused, I'm more passionate about heaven. I am ready to go. I believe that's a sign that we're thriving because we have our eyes lifted up. If we have our eyes down and we're temporally focused, we're bound to be discouraged and depressed because this, this life has nothing eternal to offer. 
So are we closer to God? Are we more compassionate and caring? And are we more eternally focused? I'd like to close with 1 Peter 5. I don't want you to turn there. You can close your Bibles. I'm going to read a few verses. And then I'm going to have you stand. And I'm going to read a few more verses as a closing benediction. This is my parting, closing blessing to you as a congregation here at Myerstown. I don't know what crisis you're going through. I don't know what crisis you have gone through or what crisis God might call you to go through. But this, from God's word, is my parting blessing for you this evening. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Please stand. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.